0: Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. We know of new this week, we're speaking to Camille Foster, media entrepreneur and host of The Fifth Column Podcast. The Fifth
1: Column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of The Fifth Column Podcast. This he
0: also was a keynote speaker at the School for Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership Conference in spring 2022. We talk about entrepreneurship, innovation, and the importance of freedom of speech in education. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Camille, thank you very much for coming on the Keeping It Civil podcast this morning. Um, We're excited to have you here, and the first topic I wanted to talk to you about is really your experience as an entrepreneur and your experience of innovation and the role that it plays in your life. You're the co-founder of a media company called Freethink, and I wanted just to talk a little bit about the origins of that company and and what you do.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me. Pleasure to chat with you today. and. Freethink is a company that was born out of a kind of mutual appreciation amongst the partners of that company of the importance of innovation in sustaining the species and improving the quality of human life. And I think that the general ethos of our company is that we believe that human progress is something that we simply can't negotiate. Stasis isn't an option to the extent our species isn't thriving and growing and innovating like that. There's something, inertia just kind of requires that that static setting is kind of de facto decline in many respects. Since we believe in innovation and we believe that innovation is something that it's not guaranteed, it's really important to have people, voices, celebrities even, who we kind of venerate and who we talk about. We understand the values that are actually consistent with human thriving and innovation, we want to profile people who are thinking differently, who are taking on the world's biggest challenge and trying to make a difference in the world, who have ambitious ideas that in many instances are very likely to fail. But if they manage to succeed, that could change the entire world. I found something
0: very interesting about your website for FreeThinkers that you really emphasize on the first page, that you're trying to sort of push back against what you see as an overly negative stance of maybe mainstream media, to use a much overused contemporary phrase, or or that these sort of amazing risk takers who can make amazing leaps in technology or other fields of innovation, that they don't get the attention that they might. Why do you think that's true, that there's this bias against these sorts of stories?
1: I suspect there's a lot of reasons, but when it comes to media in particular, one thing that I've, I've come to realize is that there is a kind of confusion where an affect of kind of cynicism, not skepticism. I think there's an important difference between those two things, and maybe we'll talk about that. But cynicism has oftentimes been confused with kind of a, a degree of like rigorousness and seriousness, um, that to be kind of venomously critical of some new idea to look for the reasons why it won't work is regarded as kind of what journalism is supposed to be about. And I think many people kind of adopted a disposition of that sort when it comes to covering science and technology to think first about the ways in which this disruption might hurt someone or could potentially not work in a particular way. And our disposition is very different. We're excited about the possibility of doing well. And to the extent there are, are real challenges that this new innovation introduces, which oftentimes there are, the question becomes, well, how do you navigate that? Uh, what might you do to mitigate this potential challenge do you think that
0: major media outlets that we engage with every day have this sort of base setting of kind of pessimism to them is that something that you perceive in the media
1: i'd say so and i think there's probably a lot of reasons for it i mean i think there's a sense in which that cynicism kind of sells and cynicism and pessimism are much easier to do than asking really thoughtful questions about important topics but it demands something of you when you at least have to entertain the possibility that something might work. It doesn't close off the possibility of at least asking the question, well, what, what do you do if this doesn't work? Or why might this not work? Which is a, a, a kind of favorite question of ours when we're talking to really cool innovators um, who are doing something really ambitious. What might you do if this not work? Why might this fail? Is a more interesting question than kind of a lot of the kind of default cynicism that we'll encounter.
0: Do you think that that's a systematic problem in media and journalism in general, that we don't have enough specialists, that there's not enough people who have enough time and resources to really go deep on some of these important industries than to tell the more positive story? Is that that part of the problem or is it also part of this, you know, bad news sells? It's great to have a person standing in front of a hurricane swept street on TV because it's dramatic, you know, that's where do you see this, um, the root cause of all of this uh, pessimism in the media?
1: I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, at minimum, it is more demanding to be thoughtfully rigorous and to be optimistic in a way that isn't Pollyanna-ish. It requires you to have a kind of philosophical disposition that you're willing to share, that you're willing to kind of root all of your work in. That's the first problem. But as I said a moment ago, I think it's just easier to be a cynic. You're above it all. You don't have to take a serious look at something and examine it and turn it over. You just get to tear it down. One of the earliest projects I did at Freethink was um, once we became kind of an original content company was a series called Wrong, and it was about finding brilliant people who managed to make an important mistake in some area, and not for the purpose of ridiculing them, but for highlighting the fact that you know this very bright person with. You know A great resume who has perhaps either gone on to accomplish something really profound after this mistake or who accomplished something really profound before this mistake made an error once. And this is the way that they got it wrong and why it was consequential.
0: To encourage uh, risk-taking as an inherent part of innovation, which is so intrinsic for you to this trajectory of human progress. Do you think that the cynicism in the media also sort of applies to politics? Oh, for
1: sure. Without a doubt. I think fear and and cynicism are, in many senses, the currency of our prevailing politics. There's a very real sense in which the principal thing that the major political parties in the United States seem to be interested in is not being the other guys on bringing coalitions together, not so much on the basis of what we all need collectively, but on, on the basis of what we all fear collectively. Um. There's a sense in which we, are, we have this kind of negative partisanship is how I've heard David French describe it. And I think that's a very accurate description of America's current political posture and the disposition of the two major parties. You see in the current summer that we're in now, Joe Biden is having a very difficult time. The economy is in a really shaky place. And Republicans don't really seem to have a coherent vision for America. It's just a matter of highlighting the ways in which Joe Biden is failing and an expectation that in a two-party system, you know, you could choose that that failure over there, you could choose us.
0: <laughs> right, that's how two-party systems work so often. Yeah. Vote the other guy out of office is the same as vote for us in so many senses. Yeah, I'd say so. Do you think that in a way, though, there might be a sort of a deeper point that other media outlets have compared to your message, which is they might just have a different definition of progress. This is something that comes up when I think about your freethink enterprises, that your definition of progress seems to focus a lot on technology, perhaps material outcomes, prosperity, these sorts of things. Whereas people from different political stances, political philosophies would have very different definitions of progress, right? So someone from the left might argue that progress is more about creating equal outcomes across social classes or other types of groups that's progress, right? If you think about Karl Marx, he was very relaxed about aggregate growth, right? He thought that that problem had kind of been solved. What really needed to be solved was the problem of distribution. And maybe people from the right... They might think that progress has got a different definition as well, right? It might be if they're conservative, socially conservative, it might be about returning to some set of values that based more on a specific philosophical or religious tradition or something. Do you think that maybe your definition of progress is just kind of out of fashion and that's why it doesn't get as much treatment in the mainstream media?
1: That's a really interesting question. My instant reaction is to say no nah, that's not it <laughs> because <laughs> okay. i really don't think there is a broadly shared a coherent vision of just what progress looks like amongst the mainstream media i think they would talk about innovation in healthcare and in other places i think they would talk about economic growth more broadly and not merely redistribution even if the two major parties kind of have these philosophical dispositions that are at odds but in one sense it's because you have well, and maybe this is a bit different because I don't even know that the two major parties are that different in some respects. The conservative movement has become decidedly more populist in recent years. Their politics seem to, and the policy positions to the extent they are coherent, uh, seem to trend in that direction. But I think there's perhaps a distinction to be drawn between like revivalists and redistributionists in general, um, the sense that there's people who kind of harken back to the old days as this is what the good looks like and people who imagine, well, we just need to take what we have and make sure it, it kind of gets to everyone in kind of better proportion. Our approach, our disposition is decidedly different in that we view progress as the real kind of keys to the kingdom. And I think everyone at least imagines that they care about progress. I think what's what's difficult is perhaps it can be hard to know where that progress is going to come from. And. Perhaps out of fear of being wrong, people just aren't interested in kind of placing bets for the most part. Like my own disposition is that we don't even know the right questions to ask in certain cases.
0: I'm so interested in your career trajectory, Camille. It seems to me that you are a serial founder of organizations and companies and leader of companies. You were a leader of the America's Future Foundation. You were a TV host. You founded a tech company in the early 2010s. You have your own podcast. Where did you get your start as a Call it a media entrepreneur or call it a business person. What was your first venture that you
1: started? Well, it's kind of a convoluted story. I think before I started my first media venture, that is, um, I found myself ready to transition out of telecom where I'd built a small kind of lifestyle company. As I was looking around for things to do, I found my way into public policy circles, which is something that I'd always had an interest in. But I was also getting calls to do media. And as someone who had pretty unique professional pedigree and that I'd built some things pretty young and who had a distinct, well-defined political philosophy, I kind of piqued a few people's interest. And when they discovered that they could throw me on camera without much preparation and that I wasn't really phased by the fact that there was lights and a microphone around and and could talk well enough, uh, more and more opportunities started to come as a result of that. So I ended up doing this gig at Fox Business where I was hosting a show for them on a nightly basis. And again, that's very little an a media experience beyond just doing hits occasionally. And that was a really great learning experience for me in a lot of respects, both because I got to kind of from a very unique vantage point, get to see how the the sausage was made with respect <laughs> to cable news. Right. And you really never want to see how the sausage gets made. I <laughs> just don't want that experience. Um, or perhaps you do, but you won't eat the thing anymore.
0: I don't have much curiosity on the cable news sausage, I have to admit.
1: Yeah, well, you may be better suited than me. I think at that age, there was kind of an expectation that there was a, a degree of professionalism, you know, industry-wide that was more rigorous and serious than I kind of discovered to be the case that kind of pervaded the entire media ecosystem that immediately became like really disconcerting for me and made me want to go do other things
0: you said that when you got your start in media appearances that one of your strengths was that you had a clear philosophical disposition that you found it relatively easy to articulate maybe you'd like to digress a little bit on that to tell me a little bit more about that philosophical disposition and and where it came from
1: Sure. I'm decidedly libertarian in that I believe in free markets and free minds, to borrow a a phrase from Reason uh, Magazine. To go a little bit further, I'd say I'm a classical liberal who believes in economic liberty, which means I also believe in free speech as kind of a bulwark of a free society, and political liberty in the sense that to the extent there is a, a political order, it has to be one that is largely democratic, but constrained in ways that protect the rights of the majority or the minorities who might be, you know, impacted by the laws that are enacted. So limited government becomes really important. And then fourth, I think important related, but perhaps often overlooked is just the importance of general regard for human dignity as kind of the foundation for any social order. And that is respect for individuals and an appreciation for the fact that all of our rights are apportioned to us on the basis of our individuality, on the basis of our humanity. And would you say that this
0: philosophical disposition, these four pillars that you talked about, is it something you learned at university? Is it something that you just picked up from various readings yourself? Is it something that maybe resonated with... Parts of your uh, upbringing or other aspects of your personality, Why, how did you come to this disposition?
1: Definitely something that I picked up along the way at university. I can't say that there was a particular course, or professor, but I was introduced to things along the way that were really valuable. But it was probably when I found my way to uh, Frédéric Bastiat and his book, this very short book, The Law, which had a profound impact on me. And then secondary to that, Milton Friedman's book, Capitalism and Freedom, he kind of introduced this concept to me of freedom being this rare and delicate plant, of there being this, this kind of fundamental struggle between tyranny and oppression and human freedom. And I think that that particular casting just really kind of hit me in the solar plexus and made it very obvious to me that there was something that was just worth kind of defending and striving for and it's you know the progress towards greater and greater, like maximizing human freedom and liberty, um but a, a real appreciation for just how few of our ancestors had actually enjoyed freedom. I think there's a sense in which, you know, especially for Americans, we have oftentimes a, a rather there's this like American exceptionalism that operates in two ways. There's the sense in which, you know, American exceptionalism means, you know, we've never done anything wrong, my country might be wrong and american exceptionalism can also serve to allow people to believe that america is somehow kind of the apogee of human awfulness because you know there was chattel slavery here but when people have i think a broader appreciation for just how ubiquitous an institution slavery has been in our history and the various ways in which people can be deprived of their liberty without being fully enslaved without being chattel i think you you develop broader perspective on these questions i
0: want to ask you more about higher education and whether you think that young people are still exposed to the sorts of ideas that have had such a big effect on you but i want to ask you that in a second what i want to ask you first is maybe a pretty different question which is it seems to me that you don't only believe in this libertarian ethos but you really live it right you are out there in the free market starting new organizations starting companies Has the hard work and the experience of doing that made you more or less of a libertarian? When have there been the moments that you've really doubted and thought, oh, man, this is so hard. This is such hard work setting up this company, or I'm not sure whether this is going to succeed. Have you had moments of doubt that that's made you question your adherence to free market principles and limited government in general, you know?
1: Not really. Um, And that's not to say that I haven't had difficult moments professionally, but I think that my, my kind of philosophical perspective and my entrepreneurial instincts come from different places. You know, when I started my first business, I don't think I had these this kind of really coherent ideas about politics, I was learning certain things, but I started my business early enough, in undergrad actually. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) What was that business that you started in undergrad? Was that the
0: telecommunications company? This
1: was a telecom consulting firm. Yeah, we were helping businesses like purchase internet services. It operated a lot like a Travelocity or something, or Expedia, where you go to buy airline tickets or hotels and you can compare rates. So we did something like that, but for really high-end commercial internet services. Amazing, and you started that as an undergrad. Yeah, in many respects, kind of being in the right place at the right time. I had a, a good friend of mine who was in the telecom industry, and he kind of saw an opportunity in the marketplace. Finding success in these spaces is, you know, perhaps three parts hustle and two parts very good luck, <laughs> because things could go in a different way. Um, and keeping that in mind, it puts one in a position of always appreciating, and having empathy for the, the kind of difficult position that other people might find themselves in, and the importance of trying to help people and share whatever lessons you've learned to the extent that's possible. So you can kind of inculcate those values in other people and hopefully help them improve the quality of their lives, which I think is as important as promoting one's own ideas. So it almost sounds like there's
0: a certain empathy there that pushes you slightly maybe, and I don't want to push this too far. You're a libertarian, but pushes you slightly in the direction of some sort of a minimal welfare state or something like that, or is that pushing things a little too far.
1: You know, I think I'm pragmatic when it comes to my politics, so I can accommodate a great many things, even if it's not so much consistent with my ideal. But at a minimum, um, I mean, to the extent I consider myself as part of a, a tribe, like I'm a humanist and an individualist. Like I believe in people. I want the species to do well. But I also believe that you know, we're, we're kind of all on this mysterious, remarkable journey together. We find ourselves on this rock hurtling through space, orbiting a nuclear furnace, which itself is you know part of a system that is orbiting around a, a galactic black hole, like this massive black hole. And all of it is ridiculous and mysterious and miraculous in a way that we all, when we take a moment to kind of think about it, you know, it's hard not to see other people. And imagine them having the same sort of experiences that I am. You know, we're just trying to raise our kids and give them the best life possible, and um, find satisfaction. So, I, you know, I'm, I think I'm motivated by that as much as anything else. You know, I believe that the classical liberal ideals that I've embraced personally are consistent with what is likely to yield the best outcome for most people, but are also just generally true and highly compatible with the world that we actually find ourselves in. Um, It's sufficiently complicated that you can't plan all of the outcomes. Knowledge is sufficiently well distributed that we kind of have to depend on markets to do really complicated coordination of society. The the economic means of organizing society, depending on markets, um, is just generally going to yield you better outcomes over time than the political means, which requires you to depend on force and can really scramble incentives in ways that are not going to be healthy over the long run. In
0: July 2020, which is, you know, kind of in the high point of all the pandemic, you gave an interview on a podcast for Reason Magazine where you critiqued the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. I'm sure you remember this. And you critiqued it from a libertarian perspective, which is kind of in uh, really builds on what we've just been talking about. But I thought I might ask you about that and uh, what exactly your critique of the Black Lives Matter movement was.
1: It was actually kind of hard to remember what I may have said in that moment. Uh, oh, I can I, remember, I'd actually. I have it written consistent. down. Oh, please.
0: You said it was anti-capitalist, anti-free markets, anti-individualist, and even anti-the scientific method.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of depends on who you're talking to, but there's a very real sense in which a lot of Modern social justice concern is bound up in a kind of steadfast, thoroughgoing identitarian ideology, where it kind of reduces us from not being so much individuals, but presumes things about us and our lives and the way we think and the way we interact with the world on the basis of our our phenotypic traits, our race, physical characteristics, and I do think that that kind of reductivism is deeply incompatible, at least creates a great deal of tension with the kind of individualist ethics that I was advocating for earlier in our conversation. Um, so I think in that way, there's a, a very severe tension there. But I also think it's the case that when you find yourself embracing a kind of, I think fundamentalist is a good word for it, like fundamentalist ideology, where you know, there are these presumptions about the kind of distinct failings of the prevailing order and about kind of tribal identities is the most important thing, or among the most important things that we can say about the people we we kind of share civilization with, that that can kind of have a corrosive effect on your ability to engage in kind of free thought. Um, certain people are allowed to say things, and other people aren't permitted to say things. Certain puristics may perhaps become very popular notions that, for example, that there is only one way to imagine that, say, a disparity in outcomes might come into existence or even persist between, say, one racial group and another racial group, and to the extent that they do exist, that they're, you know, necessarily kind of evil, and that they perhaps may even that a disparity might be more important than arresting deprivation overall, that we should perhaps be more concerned about the way that, say, Black students are on average lagging behind their white counterparts than being concerned in general about whether or not we have great remedies for helping any student who finds themselves in a school that has historically, for generations in some cases, underserved its communities and underserved the, the families and the students that are entrusted to it. So I think it's just a matter of kind of priorities. And again, where you think the most kind of fundamental units of our of our society are and whether or not you have a sufficiently broad perspective on the kind of historic disadvantages on the kind of evils that have been kind of meted out on man's inhumanity to man broadly. And I just think that the worldview, the value proposition on offer from an organization like Black Lives Matter, with whom I do have, you know, some points of agreement, but in general, like worry that it focuses too much on kind of the tribal dynamics there. And as a result, indulges in a lot of kind of hysterical kind of musing and propaganda um, and can often find itself at at pretty sharp odds with a lot of other things that are really invaluable. What are
0: those areas of agreement? I'd be interested to know, what are the areas of agreement that you have with the Black Lives Matter movement?
1: Well, in general, I've been a longtime advocate for police reform and believe that in general, the authority of the state in the area of policing is something that uh, where accountability is absolutely essential. Um, I think where they tend to go wrong is there's this presumption based on certain evaluations of the data that you know black people are at sort of unique risk of being harmed by police. And there's a lot of senses in which that isn't really true. And I think what's more important than that, though, is that to the extent there are remedies to a problem like that, there are ways to deliver transparency and accountability the remedies are not going to be race specific. They're generally going to be race neutral, at least the ones that are effective. And I think that in a lot of cases, the disproportionate focus on race tends to balkanize issues about criminal justice reform and have a lot of other knock-on effects that aren't necessarily very helpful. And as a result, it's kind of the dynamic you see now. There was bipartisan support for some sort of federal action after the death of George Floyd, in 2020. And here we are in the summer of 2022 and we still haven't seen anything like that yet. You had folks like Rand Paul who were introducing a Brianna Taylor inspired ban on things like no-knock raids on broad reforms that again to date like have not happened. Now that doesn't mean there haven't been some reforms at the local level, but there's a sense in which we we kind of have a politics that is oftentimes very theatrical and performative where making the argument in a particular way is perhaps much more important than actually achieving some sort of outcome that's likely to improve the quality of people's lives. And in other instances, there's a very real sense in which you know, you talk about an issue, you perhaps create certain sort of disruptions socially, and there are unintended consequences that are very negative. We've seen this pretty sustained spike in violent crime post- Not post, but during the pandemic and in this new phase, which I think we might even describe as like the endemic phase of the of COVID. And we haven't seen a lot of the progress that people may have hoped for. In certain cases, seem to be regressing in other ways. And I don't think one can lay all of that at the feet of Black Lives Matter, but it is interesting to note kind of the emphasis on rhetoric and the scarcity of meaningful results along the lines of these issues and the fact that there are consequences for people of all races in my estimation. Do you worry about
0: the long-term consequences of the pandemic in general? I mean, do you think that the pandemic was a sort of a inflection point in our society? You talked about the need for people to have a certain amount of material success in order to support the sorts of policies that you think lead to prosperity and human flourishing you also talked about the consequences for social order and violence of the pandemic and its broader spillover effects do you worry about you know if if indeed the pandemic has created more economic instability more socio political instability do you worry that it's going to drive a sort of a backlash towards less free enterprise people feeling less secure being less innovative and then on the other hand maybe even more policing the sorts of things that you really kind of oppose is my assessment do you worry about the pandemic in that way or do you think that we're going to move through this fairly swiftly
1: i am definitely an optimist i think a lot about the possibility of things getting better but i also don't have a presumption that it'll happen on its own i think that the pronounced rise in political violence in the United States, not just since 2020, but in general, you know, in the recent decade or so is something that has been like really disconcerting for me. The loss of confidence in institutions is one that's also been really disconcerting for me in and, and the very real kind of palpable sense that we just don't trust each other in the same way. We don't trust that one another kind of in this together or have the right motives, but also just the kind of pronounced failure of our bureaucracy to get it right. I'm also just pretty pessimistic about our ability to confront the next pandemic when it comes around, because it doesn't feel like we're doing a great deal of soul searching about the places where we got things wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. Without getting too bogged down in, in negative stuff, that was a really negative question I just asked. I'm sorry about that. One thing I one thing I like about you, Camille, is that for each of these issues where you see all this negativity, you kind of have a solution or an answer or you're working towards something and and another of these issues that you obviously care really deeply about is education and i read that in may you joined the board of the foundation for individual rights and expression which i think is often referred to as fire for obvious reasons it's kind of a long name but um i'd be interested in just learning a little bit more from you about that organization what its mission is and um and why you joined the board of fire
1: yeah, well, the, as you mentioned, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression used to be in education. So FIRE recently expanded their mandate to kind of defend free expression in a bunch of other broader contexts. But traditionally, FIRE has been a nonpartisan organization that has vehemently defended the free speech of everyone on university campuses. Because I think the founders of FIRE and the board and their advisory board, of which I was on the advisory board before I joined the big board have a real appreciation for the fact that the the work of the mind that takes place on universities, campuses, is work that demands that people have the ability to think freely and to express themselves freely. And that on college campuses, over the course of the last couple of decades, really, there's been a trend away from that and uh, a bit of a kind of cloistering, some ideological homogeneity in some instances that's contributed to that kind of hostility to new ideas, uh, a kind of policing of speech based on a desire to try to make people feel quote-unquote safe on campuses. I think perhaps a rise in sort of our, our levels of sensitivity, like the number of things that we regard as dangerous or potentially threatening on campuses has kind of changed and evolved in ways and, you know, more recently, Fire is, is interested in expanding that work beyond the university campus to perhaps take on, you know, some of the workload of traditionally an organization like the ACLU might have been more kind of relied upon to do. But in recent years, the ACLU has kind of gone away from being a reliable nonpartisan interlocutor who is willing to fight for free speech in kind of all context, who would defend the right say of, you know, the Klan or neo-Nazis to march in Skokie, which is a, a real-life example of something that ACLU did once, to one that is, has a litmus test for the kind of free speech battles that they're willing to wage. And that is kind of not so much vacillating might be the wrong word, but is trying to balance concern for particular social justice goals and objectives against the need for kind of free speech more broadly. But the folks who support FIRE and who work alongside FIRE appreciate the need for there to be people who are willing to defend these rights at the margins, who are willing to defend perhaps unpopular speech in different contexts, because there's a recognition of the fact that to the extent our rights to free speech matter, it's not in the places where no one is likely to object to something that you've said. It's at the point that you're perhaps offending someone. You know, there's there's not always going to be someone who's going to be willing to say, well, that speech is noble, but there ought to be someone who is willing to say explicitly and forcefully that speech is protected by the Constitution of the United States and that value is inviolable and it's something that we should be willing to defend as fervently and consistently as we possibly can. I'm interested in your commitment to free
0: speech and again, where it comes from, not necessarily from a philosophical point of view because it's quite clear to me how it naturally flows from your libertarianism, but when you look back on your university education are there a couple of examples of real experiences that you had that you thought were really important or really good where there was a real clash of opinions that today maybe might not be seen as acceptable or might lead to negative consequences? Are there a few moments that you thought that you benefited from or other people benefited from that, that would be lost in the contemporary environment at many universities?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll say that you know when I was in undergrad – not so long ago, but I suppose you know, 20 years kind <laughs> of time. It creeps
0: up on us, Camille. It creeps it's up on us. It's amazing how that works. Yeah.
1: Um, but when I was on undergrad, I was very active on campus. was a member of a Christian fraternity, actually. I chartered it on campus. And we tried to host campus programming that resonated with people of all backgrounds, but that facilitated discussions of complicated, difficult topics. So I can distinctly remember us having a program about real men was one of the the conversations. I believe the the title of the event was do real men still exist and there was a a lot of interesting discussions that came out of that notions of kind of manhood from a traditional kind of christian perspective were contrasted with notions of manhood from a kind of islamic perspective and from a secular perspective. There were some heated discussions in that room and even some hurt feelings at different instances, but there was an earnest effort To have a serious and sober conversation that traversed all of these different perspectives and didn't necessarily demand that we arrive at the same conclusions, but that we at least kind of entertain one another's conclusions. And in general, you know, in my undergrad experience at University of Maryland College Park, all those many moons ago, I always thought was a really healthy one. Um, It was a place where discussions like that could take place. And I've seen in a number of instances where I'll kind of go to college campuses now and, and give talks. Occasionally, um, the campus environment seems a little less welcoming, where I'll have to traverse a security gauntlet, for example, in order to get into the room. Or, you know, I, it's, it's okay for an audience to get a little rowdy. I think it's another thing entirely when people show up at a program with this express purpose of shouting someone down. Knowing my own views and knowing that I, I certainly don't regard them as extreme in any sense at least with respect to the kind of things that I'm discussing on campus most of the time, it's surprising to me to be kind of the recipient of that sort of treatment. And it's not hard for me to imagine other people getting much worse.
0: So it's personal for you in the sense that you personally feel that you profited from these free and open discussions and debates with good intentions and good natured back and forth as an undergraduate. And you feel that young people today aren't able to have benefit from the same opportunity
1: yeah I think that's right and and also just think that that kind of grace is really important in a lot of these discussions as well. I mean, I mentioned that I was an evangelical Christian, like my family is from the Caribbean. I was brought up with certain values, and I spent a good portion of my young adult life believing that like homosexuality was a sin, and there was a process for me to be introduced to new ideas, to contend with certain philosophical perspectives that I'd held, and to have folks be kind of patient and compassionate as I was working through certain perspectives to arrive at, I think, better perspectives, more enlightened perspectives. And the university environment at the time was one that, that felt kind of healthy enough to allow for that kind of transition to take place. And it may be that certain people believe that that is perhaps giving like, too much grace to a person You know, in my position as an evangelical Christian who might have a certain kind of hostility to a particular lifestyle, and not to give enough deference to someone who has a different lifestyle on campus, and who might be, you know, deeply affected by my perspective on things. But it seems to me that if we're if we're focused on pluralism as a value, and we're really promoting it, then there's nothing incompatible about a disposition of kind of having a bit of grace and aspiration to persuade people to your worldview rather than imagining that you can kind of purify the temple and force everyone to get along or even enforce a perspective on campus about what lifestyle choices other people can make that are kind of consistent with your own. So yeah, I I would definitely say that it's something that has just kind of been personally valuable to me and I think ought to be very valuable to everyone else. And that honestly, like relative to the alternative, like if the alternative is kind of a an enforced fundamentalism, a determination to make people adopt a particular worldview, I think that's going to be far less durable in the long run than the kind of cultural and social evolution that will kind of come about on its own, giving enough time and opportunity.
0: I know I have to respect your time here, and we are at the end of our hour, so I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all our guests. Is there a book or a podcast or a movie or even a TV series or cartoon series, we've had uh, people suggest cartoon series before, that you would recommend or suggest to our listeners if they're interested in the topic of civil discourse and civil disagreement?
1: Hmm. Jonathan Roush's The Kindly Inquisitors is a book that's a little older, um, and I know that he has a, a new one and constitution of knowledge that's also quite good. But for anyone that hasn't picked it up, uh, I do think Kindly Inquisitors is a really great book. and John makes a brilliant case, I think, for kind of those first three legs of the stool, the political, the economic, kind of free speech as these kind of three like pillars of a free society, and does a really great job, and I think, of kind of fairly addressing the various kind of tendencies away from those values that existed on the left and the right at the time of the writing of that book, which was the mid-'90s. And the degree to which those are still very real challenges and ones that I think should be very familiar to a broader cross section of the population at the time he wrote that, that was primarily about universities. But we've seen the same kind of challenges arise in in the private sector in different contexts in the various aspects of i think most of our lives so i think that book is is tremendously valuable and you know reading it today um, it will probably strike many people as very pressing
0: <laughs> yeah and it's also great because we actually had jonathan Rauch on the podcast just uh, a few months ago so listeners can tune in and listen to him talk about that that new book that you mentioned The Constitution of Knowledge. So thank you very much Camille for being on the podcast. This has been a really
1: excellent conversation. Well thanks so much for including me. I greatly appreciate it.